taking you to the heart of the people's struggles. I'm your host, Richard Berg. And uh, for some of you, you can see me for the first time. We're uh, doing video now, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll get better at this as we go along. But uh, um, my interview today is with uh, Christina Kittle, and you'll be able to see her as well, uh, for those of you on YouTube or some of the other ones that have video. Um, and so we're kind of excited about this. This is a, a little bit of an expansion for us. And, uh, you know, like our, our audio, I think uh, we'll get better with it as time goes on. Um, but let me let me tell you a little bit about uh, Christina Kittle. Um, she's from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. She's a working class leader. Um, she's a teacher that leads by example. Um, she's a, an organizer of black people in the Black Belt South. Um, but she's also a victim of repression. Um, at a protest, uh, she was part of the Jacksonville Five or the Jacks Five. Um, she was beat up by the police and jailed because of her activity um, in a protest, uh, uh, protesting Trump's foreign policy. She lost her livelihood as a teacher because of this. And uh, but you'll hear in this interview, she'll talk about it a little bit. But she continues to have a an upbeat attitude and a attitude about like you know we need to fight the power and uh, fight for justice. She's also a very um, you know, she's a smart strategist and theorist, and she applies her theories and practices uh, back and forth. And we'll talk about that a little bit, and you'll see how, uh, how she does that. Um, before we get into the interview, I want to, um, I can point now, for those that are watching, uh, to subscribe. Uh, hit, click the button right below, uh, below my face here, and uh, subscribe to Fight Back Radio, or, you know, like it, follow it. Um, you know, if you're on uh, Apple uh, or iTunes, uh, write a review. Um, these things all help people find us, and we, we appreciate that. For those of you who want to reach me, uh, you can. I'm at richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. That's richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. So now uh, enjoy our, our first video <laughs> um, and enjoy our interview with uh, uh, Christina Kittle. Thank you. So I'm here with uh, Christina Kittle, uh, or Kit. Uh, welcome to uh, Fight Back Radio. Thanks for having me. Nice to finally be on. <laughs> yeah, I'm particularly excited to have you. Uh, you are our first uh, video uh, guest. So I'm. Uh, we're gonna, for those of you who are listening to us on uh, YouTube or whatever, you can actually see uh, uh, Kit and myself and. Uh, uh, so it's 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 a big uh, this is our, our big journey for us and I want to thank especially uh, Shane Tremley from our production team who's uh, been on the audio side now he's going to be working on the visual side we promise uh, that we're going to get better with this even more so as we go forward um, but let me just dig right into it so so Kit is uh, on the board of directors of the Jacksonville uh, Community Action Committee and uh, what what is that Kit what's the Jacksonville Community Action Committee. Yep, um, the Jacksonville Community Action Committee is a black-led organization fighting for liberation and self-determination in the Black Belt South, um, with a hyper-focus on police accountability work and advocacy for people who are going through the criminal justice system or injustice system, and um, you know they just need help navigating things and, and advocates to, to stand by their side through it. So, so what does that look like, right? What are you guys involved in right now? Give me an example of what kind of campaigns you're doing, or what's what is what 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 are you doing on a day to day basis? Right, um, our number one campaign is always going to be community control of the police, um, and 
there's a lot of steps for that. And especially in Jacksonville, Florida, we're pretty behind the curve. We don't even have a civilian review board. And uh, that's a big problem for us because civilian review boards, they're not community control of the police. Um, and I think we're probably gonna get into a conversation about the details of that a little later. So I'll save that. But civilian review boards are not the same thing, but they're really good launch boards for what we're trying to get. And so we are trying to start a ballot initiative to get a civilian review board in Jacksonville, Florida. We're trying to get that on the ballot for the 2024 elections. So right now we're basically, uh, we've drafted legislation and the next step is we have to just go to the supervisor of elections. We have to get, I think 40,000 signatures of registered voters. So through our coalition uh, that we've built in the city, we're gonna to have to be reaching out to our partners and getting those petition signatures and getting them verified. And then hopefully we'll see that on the ballot and I think with a lot of the work that we've been doing here, people, for the most part, would like to see some kind of uh, board or civilian review. So hopefully voters will, you know, vote it in and then we can take the next steps. So the, um, the, the you've had personally have had some issues with the police in uh, Jacksonville, or at least uh, the sheriff's uh, department. Um, and uh, uh, I want to, you know, I was looking through the old Fight Back News articles and uh, your name popped up uh, with the Jacksonville Five or the Jax Five. Uh, can you tell our, our, our listeners what, what Jax Five was? And uh, I think this was back in uh, 2017, but can you tell them what that story is? Right. So in 2017, myself and four other activists, we were brutally attacked by the police while we were participating in a uh, in an anti-war protest. It was when Donald Trump dropped seven Tomahawk missiles in Aleppo, Syria. And it, it started off as just a peaceful protest and it erupted into uh, police violence. Um, but there's a lot that goes into that. It wasn't just like, you know, out of nowhere. So that happened on April 7th of 2017. One month before that, in March, there was an article that came out in the Florida Times Union, and it was called Monitoring Dissent, just in case anyone wants to look it up after this. But Monitoring Dissent came out, and it was a story about how the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office was spying on activists and organizers. And in that was my photograph um, at some, I don't even know what protest I'm at, but <laughs> it's a, just a picture of me doing my thing and um, as well as the other organizers that were basically targeted and arrested uh, the next month. So that came out and then also my lawyer did a lot of research on the situation because it was a really weird day. So we get agitators, uh, every protest, there's always somebody who's against it and they'll make noise and do their thing. Um, but I remember distinctly feeling like something was really wrong that day and I even said, uh, to the other organizers, like, don't y'all feel like something's just a little extra off? And there was this one guy who was extra loud and he had one of those giant Trump uh, flags, like huge, that you hang on like the back of a truck. And he was like waving it so that it was hitting people in the face, but he wasn't touching people. He was just using his flag. Um, I remember thinking, you know, this is kind of pushing the line more than usual, especially since it was an anti-war protest and we were working with a group around here called Veterans for Peace and they're war veterans. So, you know, like they have PTSD and also it's just rude. So 
I went to go to somebody I saw in a uniform and said, I even recorded myself doing it like, hey, um, are y'all going to step in and do anything, assuming it was the sheriff's office. And the guy starts laughing at me and making fun of me. It was really weird. And then finally I asked for his badge number and he says, oh, sweetie, you're looking for JSO, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And then it hit me that that man was not an officer. He was, um, there's a lot of hate groups down in the South, you know, and um, they weren't the KKK, but they're a group called CSA. Um, and any history buffs out there know that that's from, from the Civil War, the Confederate Soldiers of America. Um, and I think they just changed it to Confederate Southerners of America now. But regardless, they're like, you know, a hate group. Um, so and everyone's armed. <laughs> so he's armed and he's making fun of me. Right. And he's dressed up like an officer. So other people were also getting confused. So they were approaching that man. So I'm trying to tell him, hey, that's not the person you want to approach. Meanwhile, the police are there. They're just watching everything, also laughing. So finally, uh, it just erupts into that guy just pushes pushes it too far. And uh, the, the police run in and they thought somebody hit somebody. And then basically they just swarm and start attacking us. And they knock uh, one of the people unconscious. And at that point, I was running to see if the person they knocked unconscious was okay. They tased them unconscious, actually. So I was running to see if they were okay. And as I'm going, I see one of my friends who's transgender being choked out and like turning purple. And I start screaming at the... I, okay, so I didn't know if it was an officer doing it or one of those uh, cosplayers doing it. So I didn't know what to say. So I was just like, hey, get off them, get off them. And the person shoves me in my chest so hard that I go flying backwards. So I get up and run up and I punch them in the face. And then that's the point where they stand up full and I just see the, <laughs> the JSO badge as bright as it could be. And I was like, oh no, it's a cop. So um, the cop looks at me and he goes, okay, now you're going down. And then he just proceeds to just level me. <laughs> so he beats me up, dislocates my shoulder and then drags me off um and you know takes this away and i just remember when i was in jail i heard one of the people uh one of my cellmates being like who are you and i was like what do you mean they're like there's a whole crowd of people out there <laughs> and so i guess the protest followed us to the jailhouse um, oh wow that's so, what yeah. that's great you got that kind of support but you know go back to the protest itself so there was there was provocateurs you know throughout this protest and they were you were just trying to do a peaceful protest against uh, Trump's foreign policy. A am I correct? Right. And uh, Right, and right. And it it was proven that he was a paid provocateur. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, like the person who had that Trump flag, he got a police escort off the premises, right? They, they like drove him away and he was fine. But my lawyer did digging and he found out that that person, his name is Gary Snow, uh, he was traveling around the country and just doing that he was like getting paid to go on planes and, and break up uh protests i guess and uh he finally got arrested in bradenton but yeah he <laughs> it's just a paid oh my gosh weird. yeah mm -hmm. so uh let, let me uh let me move forward then though because uh, uh, uh i want to get into the you know like you've had issues with uh, the fraternal order of police lodge 530 president uh steve zona and uh you know i, I read some of the stuff in fight back news where um, right after George Floyd was was murdered on uh, 
uh, May 25th, 2020, there was a, a, a protest that you were one of the key organizers for. There was 3,500 people in Jacksonville came out in protest. And, you know, I remember, I remember this time I'm in Chicago, but we were, we had big protests here as well. Um, could you talk a little bit about that protest and what happened there and, and how you ended up getting into this uh, back and forth with uh, the FOP president? Right. Steve Zona is my number one fan. Um, even before that protest, everything after the Jax 5 situation where we got our charges dropped, he has just gone after me. I'll do things that aren't even police related. Like I used to do a lot of like women's rights work and he would still find a way <laughs> to just like attack me. So fast forward to George Floyd. Um, we had 3,500 people in the streets. Then next week we had 6,000 people. Then we had 10,000 people. Um, so our protests were getting bigger and stronger. But at that very first one, it was embarrassing for the police because our organization, we have about like 12 uh, core leaders, right? So a group of 12 of us managed to keep everybody safe, uh, peaceful, and get our demands heard. But as soon as the protest was over and there was only just like a couple of hundred people still leaving, um, JSO brought out like tanks and tear gas and started JSO arresting being the people. Jacksonville Sheriff's Jacksonville Office. Sheriff's Office. Yep. Okay, got it. And they, yep, they started coming around and gassing people. And, um, you know, our organization was working to, of course, get the folks lawyers and um, get them bailed out. And if they had any medical bills, helping them with that too. So that really upset uh, Steve Zona, who... <laughs> use his power as the uh, president of the FOP to make a call to action essentially against me uh, and he using my first and last name he goes on Facebook and is like uh, this is Christina Kittle uh, she's a radical police hating activist uh, violent activist who's harmed police in the past and gotten away with it and basically she's in, and she's a teacher. She's in your schools teaching your children to be this way. And I, my lawyer, same lawyer, <laughs> got him to have to remove that, but the damage was already done. So at that point, I, you know, the police are one thing, but I was honestly kind of more scared of like the visual aunties that follow his page, you know, like that aren't held to any kind of code or anything. Um, because I started getting a lot of messages just like super like, oh, we'll pit that little girl in her place. And uh, I'm not even going to repeat the other ones, but they were awful basically. And like one of them was like, oh, her address is public record, y'all just saying. And then I was just like, OK, so I ended up having to uh, go to the next county over for a little while just to cool down because, you know, like you got to think, too, I go running. And Ahmaud Arbery's case had also happened that year. So I don't know. I just like I would go on my jogs around the block and just knowing that they knew where I lived. I just got like nervous. So, uh, so he w went to the county. Know, he was inciting vigilantes and right wing uh, crazy types to, to, to come after you personally. And, and he was attacking your livelihood as a as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. He was telling them to uh, call the school board and get me removed and uh luckily the the school where i teach the administration was really supportive actually and like um all the parents 
of the actual students I taught were really supportive. But because so many like right wing fanatics had like called the school board and called so many, uh, put in so many complaints, I essentially long story ended up losing my job. So, so, so you lost yeah. your job as a teacher because of uh, your activism with uh, uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd and, and also being a peace activist and, and and these things that you're telling us about. Um, I mean, that's you know, that's that's I don't know. I just editorialize here a minute. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's like this is you know we're teaching our young people. We we want teachers to say, look, stand up, fight back. You know, for what you, what you believe in and what what uh, you know. We don't get uh, uh, the things we need in this world unless we actually stand up. I, I'm with uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, so I have a, maybe more of a passion for that. But the the fact that you were fired under those circumstances uh, is 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 repugnant, and so. Uh, um, I mean, I think uh, we need to. We, I'm glad people followed you to the to the jail and protested, but we need to do much more to protect uh, our really good activists like you, Kit. So I, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, let let me. Uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit here, though. Um, uh, I know you're a major leader uh, in the South in the Black Liberation Movement, and you've been involved in many things. But uh, when we talked, one of the things that you said you wanted to talk about was um, the oppression of women. And so uh, um, I want to I wanna give you a chance to do that and to say, you know, uh, how do you think this that fits into all the things that we've been talking to talking about up till now? Oh, absolutely. Um, just gender oppression in general is, uh, I mean, especially now in, in 2022, we're seeing is under attack a lot. Um, and when I was a teacher, I was the GSA Gay Straight Alliance sponsor and club leader. And I just saw how important it was to the kids to just have that space uh, to to understand each other. And you just really learned that kids are not hateful. They actually want to understand. Um, but women and anyone who is gender non-conforming, that we have to understand is an inherent threat to the structure of capitalism. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't quite comprise of the nuclear family. And the nuclear family is super important in upholding capitalism because of a dynamic that, um, you know, Frederick Engels talks about it. So that's where I'm pulling this from. He talks about, uh, why the nuclear family or, you know, a family structure is so important for capitalism. And when you think about it, it's you have, you know, a man and a woman and they get together and the woman is expected to stay home and do unpaid work to that's called reproductive labor. But what that means in this case is not just having children, not that kind of just reproduction, but labor that has to get done in the home so that the worker can wake up and go to work every day and, and reproduce that labor. So basically, if you're a worker, you still have to eat. If you have kids, you still have to watch your kids. You have to wash your clothes, you have to wash your uniform. Uh, all of these things, you have to clean your home. All these things have to be done. Um, but if you're a capitalist, what is a way that you can get somebody to work from sunrise to sunset, that nine to five or really eight, <laughs> eight to five anymore um, without stopping as much. Well, if you have somebody at home taking care of all of that stuff and then packing them a lunch so that they can have the energy to continue the day, that works out pretty nicely. So 
just on that basic level, like anybody who starts stepping away, so you have single women, working women, uh, gender non-conforming people, all of those people fall outside of the nuclear family. And then fast forward to now, you see there's more people than ever who are identifying as, uh, you know, LGBT of some sort, or a lot of people who are single and a lot higher divorce rates, a lot of these things. And you're seeing more and more aggressive laws against like transgender kids, like uh, just laws that seem to become a don't say gay bill was something that passed in Florida, basically just a lot of just open attacks on gender rights. And it makes sense, though. It makes sense when you think about how we are breaking away from that structure and how it is a threat. So so what you're saying is that uh, the nuclear family is um, uh, the most efficient way for for capitalists under capitalism for uh for workers to be organized uh to produce the most profits am i right am i getting this right basically like having that structure is good for capitalists because then they can have a reliable workforce as well there can be uh, a woman in the home producing the next generation of workforce essentially so i mean but i i think we've seen also that uh uh you know, whatever, since the 1970s, uh, more and more women have been into the workplace. And, you know, now you see working class families have two or more people. And, and I think even before that, even in the in the 20s, often uh, or probably earlier, you had women were had to go to work to, to help support the family. Yeah, I think um, if we're talking about like the 70s, which I love talking about with like the women's rights movement and gender rights movement, because it's like you see a united front in motion and then you see what happens when it falls apart. So we had the Black Panther women. We had the uh, uh, National Organization for Women. Yep. And yeah, now, now <laughs> and then yeah, we right. had. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to remember what it stood for, but now and then we have. Um, the the stonewall movement that's happening up in new york uh for gender rights all of this was great because everybody kind of had a role you know what i mean it's like the black panther women were trying to get socialized reproductive labor so all the things that i was talking about with uh laundry childcare, all of that to be a government service so that there wouldn't be this expectation for someone to have to stay in the home then you had the uh, now and other organizations that were going into the courts and fighting for things like Roe v. Wade. And then, you know, Stonewall was happening. They were throwing bricks at cops and getting gender rights, which is awesome. So <laughs> that was a good moment. However, we know what happened. The CIA dismantled the Black Panthers. Uh, Stonewall got dismantled too, or it, it got co-opted basically. Um, and the demand went from liber from, you know, LGBT liberation to gay marriage which again is not the demand that a lot of a lot of people in that community have because the demand is liberation it's not to oh let's get married so that we can still blend in and kind of be like a nuclear family except it's just two men or two women this time like that's not what the goal was but it got co-opted and turned into that and then really that just left a lot of these other organizations who had a, a big class and race difference you know what i mean they're mostly white and had a little more money. So you saw the demands start shifting more from, instead of it being socialized reproductive labor, which is something that materially could help advance this movement, it changed to, 
oh, we want to see more women CEOs or, oh, we want to see more <laughs> women in the workplace, even though they're making less money. <laughs> oh, we want to see, you know, more representation. That's what matters. Or gay marriage. That's what matters. All of this is not what matters. <laughs> what matters is we need a government that can actually like respect and provide help with reproductive labor so that anyone can go into the workforce if they want to. You know, it, you mentioned the the Black Panther Party, which was a revolutionary or black organization from the late 60s and early 70s. And it, it, as you were talking about, it, I was thinking also of the, the aftermath of the revolution in Russia in 1917. The, the first uh, commissar of uh, social welfare was a woman named Alexandra Kolontai. And she was uh, involved in saying, OK, well, we need child care centers for for peasants and for workers. And we need, you know, which some of what you were saying, uh, socialized laundry and you know cafeterias where people can can get good, healthy food and. Um, and so that's, it seems similar to what the Black Panther Party was calling for. But uh, I, I, let me just ask you, uh, what is, in your idea, what does gender liberation look like? What is, what, what, what are the demands? What are we fighting for here? I'm sticking with what the Black Panthers are still trying to get. I think that that's a great first step. Um, and it's hard to move past that when we, when we don't have care for our children and next generation and when we have to like make sacrifices just to raise the next generation you know what i mean and like whether it's men raising staying home and raising the kids whatever it is it looks different it's not always a woman that's staying home um it's because of women's oppression that we don't have things like socialized child care or that we don't have socialized reproductive labor at all so Honestly, just very simply, I just kind of would like to see us go back to those demands um, and not be afraid to ask for like material gains. And that's something that our government can do, you know? So it's like, uh, I, I always bring, cause I've been going to a lot of the, my body, my choice uh, rallies. And that's kind of like the slogan right now. And, you know, obviously I agree with that, but the people in power never agreed with that, uh, whether you're a man or a woman or a, a worker or stay at home parent, uh, they never cared about that. Like they exploit and abuse workers' bodies all the time for profit. Um, so they're not gonna care about exploiting anybody else's bodies for anything. Uh, and it's more of like a moral ar argument. I know that it means materially, we want Roe v. Wade back and access to abortions, but um, I would like it to just be a little bit more, you know what I mean? Like socialized reproductive labor back on the table and in strong demand again. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember the times you were talking about because I'm older and uh, in the late seventies. Yeah. So I'm older. Uh, but uh, um, the, uh, you know, there was besides just the national organization of women are now there was uh, I remember women in the black Hills, uh, native American women fighting against uh, forced sterilization and uh, issues, you know, there was uh, there were certain you know issues that uh, uh, around people's bodies. Uh, um, we were fighting uh, against uh, rape and uh, rape culture, and and uh, you know having safe spaces for for uh, for women. And uh, but even the, the the Roe versus Wade, the right to abortion, uh, the leadership of that at the time was mostly middle and upper class. But it's I think it's something we still want to support and we still want to fight for. No. Absolutely. I mean, we just saw it got taken away. So absolutely. Like, it's just unfortunate that the United Front got broken up because even wins that were gained are now being taken away because it's not a strong United Front anymore. And that's kind of what happens, I guess, if if you just 
I don't know, if you don't go back to, to building a strong movement around something, uh, actually it makes me really upset to think about the fact that that got taken away. <laughs> so sorry, I'm getting mad now. Yeah. But yeah. But so, but I mean, also this, this whole fight of, you know, dividing, you know, the class uh, around gender issues, I think also in, and hiring women often at uh, lower wages puts a, a downward pressure on wages for the entire working class and affects the labor movement as well. Absolutely. I mean, the same way a rising tide lifts all ships, you know, like if if you have a woman or, you know, a woman who has the same position as a man and they are getting away with giving her lower wages, like, and they see that they can get away with it, they're going to start doing it to the whole workforce and every other department. And it's just, that's how they get away with not paying workers. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. So uh, let, let me pivot back to where we started this conversation for a little bit. I, the, the Jacksonville Community Action Committee, uh, you said its core, um, uh, go, you know, core activism right now is primarily around community control of the police. And uh, you talked a little bit about you know, trying to get this referendum passed. Why is uh, community control of the police uh, so important to you? Right. Community control of our institutions is the first step in liberation because with community control of the police once we have control of that we can decide what public safety actually looks like and we can decide like what we want to see that would actually help our community you know the police going around arresting people shooting people breaking up families that does that is not our definition of public safety like but if we had control of that we can get together as a community and actually design a plan that makes sense for us so when we say community control of the police like that's what it means ideologically but then also we want to start with um a i know in chicago they have cpac going um and we're trying to get to that level but uh we want to see civilian police accountability councils everywhere because that's really the first step in getting our voices at the table and making some actual material changes. So let me interrupt you for a second, kid. Could, oh, yeah. could you explain what that is? Uh, what is a civilian police accountability council and, and getting we want them everywhere. What, what are they? How would that work? Absolutely. So like, yeah, definitely. We want to see um, they're not civilian review boards. I just want to make that clear, but they would have we, we've been saying it's civilian review boards, but with teeth to bite back, meaning in civilian review boards, you only have the power to review the investigations that officers already do of themselves. That's it. There's like no further power. But with uh, accountability councils, you would, first of all, democratically elect who sits on them from each police district, you know, so it wouldn't just be whoever the mayor appoints and it wouldn't be mostly because <laughs> the way they are right now, it's mostly former officers uh, and like wives of officers, you know, people who are all connected. Um, so we would put some democratic power behind it on who sits there. But then they would also have powers to do things like subpoena evidence or, you know, have a say in higher fire practices, rewrite some of the the uh, practices that they do on the force. Um, I just want to give an example from some of the work that we do of why that's so important. And uh, especially, uh, I'll focus on the subpoena power for now. So 
we had a case where a young man named Keegan Roberts was shot in front of his own home. He was on a date night with his wife and she's the only witness. So the neighbor shot him and Keegan was a gun owner of Gannett's Florida, you know, that's fine. But he didn't have it on him because he was on a date night and he was outside of his own home. Two things happened. They said because his body fell on the sidewalk and not on his actual property, that the person who shot him was able to claim stand your ground. And the only witness who was there, his wife, told, uh, you know, her story was that he never had his gun. He, it, it was in the center console. He never touched it. But it was her word against, you know, the perpetrator's word, or not the perpetrator, the guy who's innocent, apparently, whatever, the killer's word. And they ended up just kind of going with him. Who, if there's nobody there that can also look at the evidence and definitively prove, like, what actually happened with that gun, it's just, you know, law enforcement's word versus the victim's word. And also, it's important to know that the kid who shot Keegan, uh, he's connected to law enforcement. He was aspiring to become part of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And it was either his father or somebody was already part of the force somewhere. So this kid was already connected to the police. So when it was her word versus his word, the police, you know, took the so, side that so, they wanted to take. So if we had a, a you know, whatever, a, a civilian police accountability council in Jacksonville at that time, what would they have been able to do? How would that have looked? Well, one thing is they probably would have been able to actually have access to the evidence to say, hey, yeah, like Keegan's gun was not on him at the time. <laughs> so that would have been a very big thing for her because then uh, the standard ground case, it, why did you fear for your life if he didn't even have a gun and was on his own property? Like he wouldn't have been able to claim that so easily. Um, but also there's a, a really difficult process for the family members after they lose a loved one. Um, and this, in this case, uh, you know, the killer wasn't an official officer yet, but in other cases where we work with, it's actual police officers that are doing the killings and there's nobody holding them accountable. When you hear internal investigation, that's them investigating themselves. And we even have an extra law down here, um, statute 112532. That's the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. So I was a civics teacher before I lost my job and everyone knows we already have a Bill of Rights. Every citizen is protected by a Bill of Rights. But in Florida and in about like 15 other states, there's extra protections just for police officers. So I always tell people, if you suspect, if you suspect cops are above the law, in Florida, they actually are. There's a law written that gives them extra protections. And part of that is they if they kill somebody they have a cooling down period so if i kill somebody i'm sitting in jail immediately if an officer kills somebody they can just go home kick it they get to look at some of the evidence that's going to be used against them and they get to pick some of the officers that sit on their uh their trial basically their investigation so all of that is disgusting first of all but if we had some kind of cpac down here we would also have people that we get to choose that get to have a say in how these things kind of go and then where they can go forward whether or not an officer's killing was justifiable right now it's only them who decides that it's only them and the state attorney 
And every single case that we've dealt with in Jacksonville, no matter how egregious they've been, uh, the state attorney has ruled justifiable. So we just need some kind of power from the community to fight against that and help these families out. So uh, this um, community control of the police, this actually, we can trace this back probably probably back to the uh, slavery times, but certainly back to the uh, Black Panther Party. I've heard you talk about that. Um, how is it that, uh, you know, you know, how did the Black Panthers deal with it? And uh, can you bring it forward to where we are now and, you know, how, that, that you guys are still fighting for it in Jacksonville and, uh, you know, the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression is fighting for it across the country in their different chapters, which I believe you're one of. Yeah, yeah, the, we, I am. Uh, we are one of them. Jacksonville is. And um, yeah, it, the framework is from the Black Panthers um, and it's, it's essentially kind of the same thing, just they got attacked by the CIA and like killed. <laughs> so they didn't get to make as many moves for it. But we, Chicago is really the city that people should look at uh, if they wanna see how much progress could have gotten made if they weren't br broken up so violently. And like a huge part of what they did was they you know were part of like rainbow coalition and they like they they were really good at coalition building and that's a huge part of it is like a lot of people want police accountability um but it seems like everybody has their own idea of what it looks like and they don't really come together to make it happen the black panthers were really intentional about reaching out to all of those other groups and meeting them where they're at and then getting them on board so that they also had some kind of buy-in for this. It wasn't just an idea that they came up with. They got input from everybody, like people from all around the country really, to say how they would like to reimagine public safety for their communities. And that's the, the blueprint they came up with and they started fighting for it. And when they did, they had a strong base pretty much everywhere to push for it. Um, that's something that we definitely are seeing in Jacksonville, and I know Chicago seeing it because uh, they found allyship in places we didn't even think would uh, support them. But down here, we have, you know, we even have lawyers who, when you think about it, of course they want to see more police accountability because there's so many cases where they take a victim uh, who lost somebody to police violence and then they can never win that case because there's so many unfair laws against them. So now we have lawyers who actually agree with us. Uh, we have students who, when they do surveys of the community or they do like um, studies, uh, they, they are seeing directly how public health, mental health, all these things are affecting the community at large. So they wanna be involved and they wanna give their studies into this. Um, just, yeah, just big coalition building and just understanding that like it affects everybody in some way, whether or not they understand that. And like, you know, in the police budget is a huge thing that we've like brought a lot of attention to for that reason, because now we even have like business owners and people that maybe never had an interaction with the police at all, but they see that the police are getting all the money in the city essentially. and they're not getting any money and nonprofits aren't getting the money, but the police are just to kill with impunity. So like, I don't know. I, I feel like I went off a little bit, but no, no, that's a good. Big let, 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 me, let me circle back with you a little bit on it though. Um, so, I mean, some of this, uh, I mean, going back to the Black Panthers and others, 
is uh, is a question of self determination, and uh, in trying to empower uh, people, you know, black people especially, but all other uh, oppressed peoples, and uh, by allowing them uh, to control the police. And, uh, you know, it, it's diff- it's a different approach than simply saying we need to fight racism or racism's bad, which, of course, it is. And, of course, we need to fight racism. But uh, could you talk about that a little bit as a, as a strategy for uh, for power? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it all it does go back to self-determination and why it is a revolutionary call, um, because, like I said, it's it's getting buy in from everyone in the community on how we would like to see public safety look and how we would like to have control over uh how that functions you know and it's like community control of the police is what we're working on now but i would like to see community control of education i would like to see community control of everything at some point because we are stuck in a system where we're used to kind of just accepting that these decisions get made at a higher level and it is what it is and we just have to live in it um, but when you start doing campaigns like community control of the police and you start talking to people and, and putting the idea in their head, like, hey, we actually have the power to tell them like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And we have the power to form and shape what actually helps our community. Um, it changes it changes perspectives and it, it changes people's like uh, enthusiasm about being involved and making our community better and then you know hopefully becoming organizers with us and doing a lot of things but you know once they're involved and once they understand that like this is a material thing that we can start with and we can get community control of this institution um hopefully they'll start to understand that it is one step closer to self-determination uh entirely some of the people um you know, I've heard uh, that call themselves abolitionists. Some of them support this. Others will say, well, this will just create another layer of bureaucracy. And really what we need to do is get rid of the police. Um, how would you answer that question or that statement? It's going to be really hard to get rid of something uh, you don't have any control over. You know, like how come we haven't gotten rid of it yet? It's it's interesting to me um, when and I, I just look at history, like historically, there have been rise and falls of police forces, um, but not at the hands of the people. So, um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure Miss Al will listen to this and want to chime in, but I will bring up Japan. And uh, when they had the Meiji Restoration, it wasn't a people's revolution. It was just shift in power, though. Um, and they went from having like the shogun as you know swords for hire essentially being the i don't know police force i guess um and they just they disappeared because there was a shift in power but the power was not in the hands of the people and so instead of it being abolished it just transformed into the toko which was modeled after western police mostly so so what year those, was this about uh you know <laughs> that's it yeah i don't want to that's even okay say, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to yeah. put you on the spot but okay go ahead sorry yeah i just i don't want Michelle to be like no <laughs> uh-huh. but like but yeah like um it was like late 1800s <laughs> but um okay or maybe maybe mid 1800s but like um but yeah and it it did shift and then the toko ended up being like a force largely that like stopped communists in korea and stopped a lot of other like movements that like were people's movements so like it's just the 
public safety is a thing that's going to exist in any community or any society. It's something that people should want to have. Um, but what it looks like and the function that it serves is dependent on, on who's in control of it. So like, uh, we live in a punishment culture as it is. And that's what our police do is they punish people. They don't try to heal. They don't try to, to fix or solve anything. They just punish people. Um, and I'm afraid, you know, like if we're following other examples, like we get rid of the police, let's say we abolish the police as we know them. People, if there's still capitalists out there with property to protect, they're just going to start hiring mercenaries or they're just going to start hiring their own private police forces. Like just because if we get rid of the police, like if capitalists are still in charge of everything, are they just going to be like, oh, okay, it's done now. Like, I don't think so. Um, and that's not really a risk I'm willing to take. I would rather have control of the institution and know for a fact that it's going to transform into whatever we say it will. Let me ask you also then about, uh, you know, as a black woman leader in the South who's uh, you know, active around these things, uh, you know, the police are racist, uh, seems everywhere. Uh, why is that? Why, why do we have, uh, you know, you think, you know, every person isn't racist or they maybe, you know, whatever. But how do you see that, that the police department uh, seem to attract or, or to have these extreme uh, characters? I mean, even here in Chicago, we have uh, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police is an extreme character uh, supporting Trump and, and, and not, ref, you know, not reflective of uh, our communities at all, I don't think. No, yeah, I mean, because they were slave patrol. That's like literally their origins is, uh, you know, fugitive. So again, civics teachers. <laughs> no, go when ahead. I'm teaching my, yeah, like I'm teaching my students about uh, the Constitution and laws and how they're created. And when we go over the Constitution at first, it's just, you know, the Bill of Rights. How can we stop our government from taking advantage of us, the people, right? So everything is written in those first 10 amendments about the government does not have the right to quell free speech. Like the government can't take our guns. You know, it's, it's structured as what the government can't do to us. Fast forward to 1850 and you get the Fugitive Slave Act comes out right around the time when there was a bunch of slave rebellions and, you know, Nat Turner's rebellion was happening. John Brown was was uh, killing people, slave owners, and people, uh, slave owners were starting to say, you know, we really got to do something about this. We can't keep having them escape and find their freedom and go over to free states. So we need to come up with something. And that's like one of the first kind of wave of laws that started coming out where instead of this is what the government can't do to us. It, it had people looking in their own neighborhoods and their own communities for criminals, you know, black people, slaves, like those were the criminals that were being targeted by that. So they needed to create forces and those slave catcher patrols and the sheriff wore a star so that you knew who to bring the slaves to, like once they were captured. So like, you know, if that's the general history, I'm obviously condensing it a lot, but like if that's the general history of where it comes from, it, <laughs> like that's that's what it is. Like they look, those were the number one criminals, even though it's changed a little bit. Those were the number one criminals was black people. So in the in the last hundred years, hundred plus years, uh, uh, maybe hundred fifty years, I guess whatever, um, we're talking about uh, this hasn't changed. 
You know, it's uh, and and I I, I see for those of you that uh, uh can see the video on our first video show, you'll see you're you're wearing a Freedom Road Socialist Organization T-shirt. So you're calling for more than just community control of the police. Uh, I think I, I think you're saying that we need to. Uh, that capitalism has also failed uh, black people and and working people, and uh, um, so so you're a socialist. Why 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 is that? Why do why do you have those things? And how is that going to fix these problems? Um, <laughs> it's funny. The initial answer to that is because um, the <laughs> back to being raised by a black mother. My mother used to say, "I don't know a lot about." Same with like Fannie Lou Hamer, the same mentality of like, I don't really know a lot about communism, but if it makes the people who are in charge of the way things are going here that angry, it's probably the right thing for us. Like we should be (laughs) behind it. (laughs) And I remember hearing that um, specifically about um, Fidel Castro. That was her stance on him Um, because, you know, like he took an Asada, Shakur, he like, uh, so like Nelson Mandela even went over there, like so many black Uh, leaders were going to Cuba and speaking highly of it. And I just, I looked into that. I was like, why? Yeah. Like, why does, why are black people so into Cuba? Like what's going on over there? And then I realized like, oh, because Castro did to Batista what Lincoln should have done to the Confederates. Like, (laughs) and he uh, like basically kind of like started a reparations program, uh, that was communism, which is, and now today, now that I'm, you know, more into the work, I can just see that there's really no reason for a system to exist where uh, like a handful of people hoard everything, hoard it. I'm talking surplus. And we see people going homeless and hungry on the streets to the point where we just walk past them now like we don't even see them as people anymore uh because of the way that it is and i like communism specifically because it's material you know it's the demands are all material and it's it's not afraid to fight (laughs) like communists are not afraid to organize and they're not afraid to fight for these things and the organization too was a big thing for me like I've always had a fire about justice and, you know, fairness in general. Um, But after I got arrested and I saw how the campaign went to get me free and not have my fate be just some political prisoner, I immediately was like, okay, I see what they're talking about now as far as like how you can fight for these things and how you win the fight is by being organized on that level. So that's why I'm in it now. All right. Um, so we're, we're almost out of time here, but is there anything else you want to add uh, uh, to, to our Fight Back Radio listeners? Anything, any words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, I would just say if you're out there and you're not already part of an organization or if you're like on the, the cusp like how I was, but you have that fire too and you know that things are wrong and you know that they can be better, I would just say like, reach out to organizations like Freedom Road, find out if there's a national alliance in your area um, and and try to get involved. I was really skeptical about joining. Uh, it took I was like adjacent to Freedom Road for about like five years before I finally was like, okay, yes, I wanna join. I would say like, don't have a negative mindset about things and 
instead of trying to find all the things that could go wrong or, or, or you know, that's like fear talking. Just try to have like uh, an attitude like we, we don't really have that much to lose. <laughs> like, so <laughs> try to have an attitude of like, let's do it and be excited about it. Uh, it's a good way to end it. Uh, we're, we'll put the, in the show notes, we'll put uh, how to get a hold of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression and how to get a hold of the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. So so thank you so much for Kit. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Kit. This has been a real joy. So bye-bye. No, thank you. <laughs> bye. Thank you, Christina Kittle, a real fighter from the heart of the Black Belt South. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. It was uh, great to be able to talk to her. And uh, I mean, this was not only our first uh, video interview, uh, this was also our first one uh, that we did through Zoom. So we did it uh, across uh, from different cities where I wasn't actually sitting in the same place with the person. So uh, yeah, give us feedback. Tell us uh, how you think we can do it better. Uh, Richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. And uh, any other suggestions you have of how we can make this uh, um, a better uh, a better podcast, a better uh, a better show? Um, as I said, we're going to put in the show notes uh, uh, the how you can get a hold of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, and how you can get a hold of uh, the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, as well as how you can get a hold of Fight Back Radio. So, um, but I want to thank especially uh, and uh, maybe special special thanks to our production team this time because. Uh, you know, with the video stuff, there's a lot more. We're taking on a lot more work, and when I say we, I mean mostly they. And so uh, uh, I want to give special shout-out to uh, Vince Olshin, Shane Tremley, and Dodd McColgan. And uh, they've, they, you know, they're the fight-back team. They're the ones that make it happen. I, I really, really do appreciate all they've been doing. So uh, for the entire fight-back radio team, uh, this is, I'm Richard Berg saying until next time, all power to the team. Yeah,